she told me this incredible story. Men uh, I cannot understand what they're about uh, these hypotheses. But it is, of, it is often uh, ignored. It just took an open mind. Think Awe, we look at incredible stories from a perspective of science and magic. I'm going to tell you two awe-inspiring personal stories that are two dots in the bigger picture. Then we'll connect some more dots in support of the lunar human entrainment hypothesis. This links the 9.3 and 18.6 year cycles with reproduction, sleep, dreams, mood, spiritual, and perhaps paranormal events. We will examine some time correlations between the events in space and events in nature and our lives, and potentially the physical and intuitive worlds. This includes an interview with an ecologist on the growing evidence for the cosmic ray hypothesis. And then we'll have a review of a recent paper entitled, Longitudinal Observations Call Into Question the Scientific Consensus That Humans Are Unaffected by Lunar Cycles. This was published in BioEssays 24 May 2021. Finally, we're going to zoom way out and show the strategy for navigating a landscape of awe-inspiring experiences, the map charting the course of future episodes. I'm having a fun and fascinating time learning as I go, and maybe you will too. Here's the first story. When I was 13 years old, I had a set of three dreams, each separated by two weeks, each becoming more vivid, more detailed. In the first dream, I was driving a speedboat alone and was thrown from the boat. The boat was continuing. It was going fast in circles, but a little chaotic. I was stuck far from shore and uncertain what to do. In the second dream, I was driving a speedboat alone and was thrown from the boat again. The boat left me far from shore and I, I didn't know what to do. In the third dream, and much more vivid, detailed, and realistic in color dream, on a very sunny and calm summer day, again, I was driving a speedboat alone and was thrown from the boat. This time, I was close enough to shore that I could, I could reach it. The boat ran aground on shore and was undamaged except for the outboard engine prop that needed to be replaced. Now, about two weeks from that third dream, I was driving a speedboat alone. This wasn't a dream. Now, generally, I used to take turns rotating through the water skiing and driving the speedboat and spotting the skier with my older brother and my dad. 
On this particular day, my brother wasn't around, and my dad and I ended up going, just the two of us. It was a beautifully calm, sunny summer day, and the water was like glass. When the water was that calm, we liked to go up river where it was narrow and more protected from the wind to ski on a glass mirror of a water surface. So I drove up the narrowing river with my dad water skiing with one ski, known as slaloming, behind me. Just when I got to the point where I was, well, I ran out of sufficiently deep river for the boat, I started to turn the boat around. And just as I started into a, a sharp turn, my dad leaned back hard to make a big spray. That caused the boat to tilt to the right more than 90 degrees sending me out of the boat and into the water. Prompted by the dreams, I immediately reacted by pushing away from the boat, pushing away from danger of being mutilated by the outboard engine's propeller. Then, as the boat passed, I immediately propelled myself back toward the, the ski rope. I grabbed it before the boat had enough momentum to cause rope burn. My dad and I held onto the the rope with white knuckles. Pulling back as hard as we could, we managed to cause enough drag to keep the boat from accelerating. Even though the, the engine was fixed in a turn, it, it kept going straight. Uh, we kept it from turning. We managed to keep the boat from, from heading back down river where there had been nothing to stop it. Instead, it headed for nearby shore before we lost our grips. The hull hit a dead tree-strewn shore there, there, there was no damage to the boat, apart from the outboard engine propeller getting damaged. And, just as in the dream, it had to be replaced. I'm now in the middle of an experiment. Let me explain. Paranormal experiences are so common that you are in a minority if you haven't had any. I didn't know that until recently. I'm trained and experienced in STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, including the natural laws of the classic physical world, you know, physics, chemistry, etc. I'm now intentionally living an experiment, gleaning what might be called laws of intuition. Perception versus belief. So, Years ago, I developed and was granted patents in methods for improved prediction in human vision perception and cognition. The breakthrough in accurately modeling perception was due to focusing on the adaptive nonlinearities responsible for perceptual illusions and masking. We see things that aren't there, and we don't see things that are right in front of us in predictable, repeatable ways that are encoded, they have been encoded in mathematical structures. Our memories of what we see, including aspects of color and other attributes, are warped in our memory as our memory ages. For example, we see an image and it changes from a few seconds 
to 20 seconds, etc. This has been modeled accurately as well. The same principles apply to illusions across sensory perceptions and emotions. Corruption of reality. In John Shoemaker's book by the same title, he points out via studies that a certain degree of intuitive perception disconnected from what we call physical perception is optimal, it's good for you, for mental, spiritual, and physical health and other central measures of success such as happiness, relationships, career advancement, wealth, etc. Intuitive Openness Experiment So, based on this information, I decided to give it a try. I decided to intentionally suspend judgment and disbelief from the physical-centric, rational mind just enough to entertain the idea that the intuitive side might have a useful contribution, and, and then see where it leads. We all can develop intuition, and arguably most cultures throughout the world in time have had traditions for developing intuition. So guided by empathy, offering help, and asking for help, anyone can do this. You can do this. Developing intuition is a way to be more sensitive to synchronicities and things that can be considered paranormal events. So it's a step towards examining paranormal events correlated with other things. Paranormal inventory. If you stop to think about all the events in your life that could possibly be interpreted as paranormal, perhaps seem like significant coincidences, dreams, hunches, things that just seem strange, what comes to mind? Do you notice any patterns of types and timing? I recalled many of the apparently paranormal events in my past and noticed that they came in waves, one type for months, then another, and eventually the pattern repeats. The pattern repeats in cycles, and recent scientific studies are correlating cosmos, ecology, and events in people's lives Maybe the dots are connecting. You've heard my boating accident story. Well, that's one dot, one story. Here's the second one. So decades later, I had a series of dreams of a similar nature. Here's an example of, of one of those dreams in detail. In my dream, it was more or less contemporary with my life. It was about two years ago. I was traveling for work in the dream and was late and felt urgency to get where I was going and I didn't have any device to help me navigate this part of town but I knew the direction I needed to go. There was a shortcut that went through the property line of a private residence. I followed the edge of the property until it was too steep and I stopped to consider how to proceed. A young chubby boy waved at me and said it was okay to pass through his lawn. He said, as a matter of fact, I could save time and go through the house. Hey! There's a shortcut this way. Come on, through the house. The door was big and wide and I decided to take him up on it. I was carrying a box of electronic parts and as I walked into what looked like a living room, the child asked for some help with some electronics project on the floor. Can you help me with this project? I told him sorry, but I'm very late for work. But he insisted that I take at least just a quick look. 
I put down my box of parts and he tipped them over and mixed them in with his parts. And so now I had to either leave the parts or be even much later for work. Uh, just then, a person I knew from childhood, a guy named Mike, now grown, bursts into the room and is all grins. He's like, hey, Kevin. He greeted me like lots of enthusiasm. He said, come this way. Hey, Kevin. Kevin, come here. Come here, follow me. And I, and I thought this was going to be a shortcut, right, that the kid had talked about to get to the other side of the property. So I, I just gave up on the parts and I, and I followed Mike. We entered a room with another door at the other end, but I noticed an adjacent window looking outside and there was nothing there but a lake. So there was no shortcut off of the property. And now Mike blocked the door. He's still grinning and he said kind of gleefully, he's like, you can work on this. Take a look at this. Can you believe it? Yeah, you can work on it. Come on. I know you can. He pointed to uh, a, a, what looked like a prototype circuit of some kind. And I said, well, I have no idea what you're talking about, and I really need to go. So we, we violated like this back and forth for a little bit until finally he got angry. Look, I'm telling you, you can work on it. He became overtly angry just for a moment. And he, and he says, you have to work on this. And then just in a moment, he said that the whole building spun and like broke off the shore and it was spinning around the lake sort of aggressively to sort of follow his aggressiveness. And uh, it was basically a strong message like, you're not leaving until you work on this. But I still, I was, I was determined. It's like, I insisted I have to go, especially after that. It's like, I, I can't be here with this. And Mike melted back into his uh, friendly demeanor and... Hey man, it's cool. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it at all. It's fine. The building reverted back to essentially being connected to the land like it was before, and, and I left. At that point, I was uh, confused, and somehow the whole day was gone, and so there's no point in trying to get to work or get my parts or anything. It was just like the whole day was shot. And so I was walking down the street, not sure what to do, and I walked past this, this open bar, and uh, it was open to the outside, and there were two uh, older ladies that hailed me by name. Hey, Kevin. Kevin, we want to show you this. So I walked over and they said, hey, you know what? We know what's going on here. We we can tell you something about what's going on. Yeah, we know what's going on. This? You made this. And they showed me this thing. They said it was a small device. And they said, you know, this is from the future. You made this. And I, I was like, what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> and like, what would you do if someone said that to you, right? That's how I felt. And then they said, I mean, Russians want this technology. Well, you know, and the Russians are spying, and they, they're spying on my progress, and they, they wanted the tech, and they're trying to steal it. And then they showed me uh, how it looked when it was turned on, and they said someone in the Midwest, like Chicago, Ohio, or somewhere, um, would know when it was on. Yeah, she's a medium. She'll know. And this all seemed like, you know, pretty, pretty weird, like, okay, you know, it's a dream, whatever. <laughs> and now night becomes day, and I'm walking along the street to find transportation. It's like, you know, fast forward to the next day. I don't know what happened overnight, but... Okay, I'm trying to find transportation to go home, and Mike sees me walking along the street, and he comes running after me. Hey, Kevin! Kevin, hold up! Hey, hey, hold up, man. I gotta talk to you. He's all friendly and happy, and he's hailing me down, basically. Then, just at that moment, the same ladies is from the bar drive up in an old car. They drove up and said, hey, Kevin, you know, get in, get in. 
let's get away from, you know, Mike, he's bad news. Kevin, come with us. Let's get away from Mike. Come on, Kevin. We'll take you home. And I kind of felt like, based on his aggressiveness I had seen earlier, that maybe they're right, even though I didn't even know who they were. So I got in the car, and then uh, they were, like, driving me home. And that was kind of the end of the dream, and I didn't think a whole lot about it, except at that point, for reasons that I'll, I'll talk about maybe in another episode, I was writing down my dreams, and I was keeping records of it. I probably would have totally forgotten otherwise. There were people from my past that kept showing up in these dreams, or people that I didn't quite recognize and they seemed to know me. And at first it seemed like just different, unrelated dreams. Apart from the device, or some device that was unusual, and then in some dreams people told me that uh, I needed to work on it, or they wanted me to work on it, or that I had already designed it. Well. And uh, one day it dawned on me that in those dreams, everyone was deceased. I mean, the people that I recognized, the people that I actually knew in real life, they were no longer alive. Mike was no longer alive. At first I recalled that some had passed away, and then I checked on some and found out, well, they're no longer alive. In one dream, there were a whole bunch of famous musicians at a rock club where my gig had gotten canceled along with theirs. We were comparing notes about gigs and such. Later, I looked up all the musicians I could remember in that dream. They were all no longer with us. They'd all died prior to the dream. So, okay, I had all these dreams. Within a year of the last dream that I could remember that was sort of on that topic, I was working as a contractor on a device that was used to communicate in an unusual way. The device I was being paid to work on was meant to work with the deceased. I recognized it from my dream at one point. It just like clicked, it's like, oh, oh yeah, I had a dream about this. In fact, I recognized the device from the dream that those ladies were in when they showed me this device. It was at one point where I realized I had a change of configuration and all of a sudden, oh, it looks like that device from the dream. So all these strange dreams were apparently what you could call premonitional and now seem to have new meaning. And when I realized that, it blew my mind. Okay. So far, we have covered two sets of apparently premonitional dreams. But there were many, many more, especially after I started paying more attention. That brings us to cycles. At some point a few years ago, I noticed a pattern in time of when I seemed to get more of these dreams and other strange things, and it seemed like, like in a cycle, there was a cycle in my life relationships starting, ending, births, spiritual connections, animals behaving anomalously, accidents and natural catastrophes, certain types of premonitions, anomalous light scene. There appear to be one or two harmonically related periods for the cycles. One just under 10 years and or a little under 20 years. It turns out that the lunar standstill cycle fits quite well 
and that there is evidence that humans and other species of animals and plants are entrained to both the 18.6 year cycle and the 9.3 year half cycle. So if you haven't heard of the standstill cycle, it basically has to do with the relative position of the moon, the earth, and the sun. With these cycles, there appears to be a connection between biology and cosmos and the strange events that happen along the different phases of the cycles. That is what's led to this podcast and examining all the unusual experiences, many, many more dots that we'll explore and connect. And then we'll zoom in on connections between the cosmos and biological cycles, including human mood and behavior, and some recent scientific research and analysis. This brings us to an interview with one of the pioneers in connecting the cosmos to species population cycles, ecologist Vidar Selos. Vidar is a proponent of the cosmic ray hypothesis. In a nutshell, the cosmic ray hypothesis states the following. You have high-speed charged particles, mostly protons, known as cosmic rays, enter the Earth's atmosphere from outer space. But most are deflected away due to the Earth's magnetic field applying force to these charged particles. The lunar standstill cycles change the Earth's magnetic field, thereby changing the cosmic ray intensity reaching the Earth's surface. The primary hypothesis of the cosmic ray hypothesis, the part that's not known yet, is whether or not the plants are, you know, they're stressed by the cosmic rays, and the, the idea is that that stress is thought to change the digestibility of the plants. And the change in the digestibility of the plants is thought to change the food supply quant- quality for herbivores thereby changing herbivore populations and their predators. I'd like to welcome Vidar Selos, a Norwegian ecologist with 62 publications, 1,442 citations, 109 highly influential citations. And a key topic and the reason that we're talking today is the cosmic ray hypothesis. I very much want to welcome you, Vidar. Thank you for taking the time. You were just um, kind of telling me how you got into this interest of the, the population studies and so forth. So could we, could we maybe start there? Yes, we can. Well, I have always been interested in nature and uh, in particular animals since I was a little kid. And uh, I took my, uh, as a student, I, uh, I was working with roe deer. This is small species, okay. And, uh, and later on, the birds of prey uh, was working with. Mm-hmm. But I, I returned to the herbivores because I was so interested in these uh, uh, population cycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Norway, it's particular small rodents, voles. Uh, we have these three to four year cycles, but we also have some spaces with 10 year cycles. Mm-hmm. So I have been have spent lots of time to studying uh, or um, uh, try to figure out what could be the reason for these fluctuations. And then I have to mention uh, Thomas White, uh, because his uh, hypothesis, the plant stress hypothesis, 
I, I think that is a very good explanation for these uh, multi-annual population cycles of uh, some herbivores. Thomas White hypothesis was that? The cosmic rain hypothesis was uh, something I proposed. But okay. the, the, ba- the, the basic, I, I think uh, the basic here is the plant stress hypothesis of Thomas White. Uh, the plant stress hypothesis. So the point is that sometimes plants are stressed by, by a factor that uh, means that they have to uh, mobilize proteins. Okay, so it's all about how the plant is stressed. Yes, and, in this and, cycle. and which then affects the herbivores. I'd like to back up a little bit because the, some of the audience may not be familiar with the cycles, just the general picture of the cycles. Um, was it Robert Main, an ecologist, that came up with the original logistic map, the mathematics that described cycles between predator and prey? There's, a, there's essentially a, a famous predator-prey model that predicts that you will have cycles and it can it can spiral into chaos and and you know intuitively you can understand that if you have a predator that eats all the prey um in an area then the predator's food is gone and the predator will die out as well that's Um, the good good old hypothesis that we call it the predation hypothesis mm -hmm. but but i and of course predators have the ability to affect uh, uh, prey populations that uh, I, I think we can agree. Yeah, the, the problem so, is that you will never get this uh, regularity. I think it will yes. be more chaotic. Yeah. So in, in between the extremes of like every year the population is the same or catastrophic failure, <laughs> in between those you have all these scenarios where you have cycles where one year let's say that if the predators eat the prey a lot, then the next year the prey uh, isn't available as much, so the predators won't reproduce as much as there's, they're, they may be near starvation. There's this continuum along these lines. I've examined the math in the past. I have a patent on photosensitive epilepsy trigger detection that predicts the brainwave patterns that you get, the EEG uh, cycles you get. Um, there's an onset as you're getting a stimulus where the brain waves become irregular, but in a way that's very common, and then, then it becomes chaotic. There's a theory, there's a universality of unimodal um, logistic maps, which is basically just uh, applying a certain type of theory to this model. It's the same as the predator-prey model, and that's the thing that's kind of interesting about it, why there's this universality. That theorem takes very complex things and allows you to predict things. So you could tell mathematically if a predator-prey relationship is following this versus, let's say, the predator-prey cycle is entrained by something else, right? If it was trained, something else in the environment is causing the herbivores population to be going up and down more, or, and probably more important for our conversation, if the plant population is being somehow affected in a way that wasn't just from the herbivores? Yes, well, well I, I think uh, uh, this is a bottom-up relationship because the plants, you know, plants are not interested in being eaten. So they, yeah, they, store, exactly. they store their proteins in, yes. in, in, in so that they are very difficult. To, they are not very available. And uh, if the proteins are stored in such a way that it takes as very complex compounds, so that it takes very long time for the herbivore to digest this plant, 
then the, you, you, there is there's a critical threshold with regard to protein uh, digestion per time unit. So if the digestibility is too low, this plant isn't food. It is mm-hmm. not dangerous to eat it, but, but you can't uh, cover your protein demand by eating this plant. Mm-hmm. But then th- that's why I wanted to mention uh, Thomas White. What he said is that if the plant then is stressed in such a way that it has to mobilize and use these proteins, they cannot be transported as complex compounds. They have to be uh, breaking down to more, perhaps to free amino acids, very uh, or at least very digestible proteins. And then you can get over this threshold. So suddenly the plant is food. And if this happens in a whole plant population at the same time, then you will have a marked increase in the uh, carrying capacity of the herbivore. The problem for us is that we can't see it. We can't, we can't taste it. We can't smell it because we are, we are not herbivores ourselves. So it's to us, it's somewhat difficult to understand such things. But then what I think is that we should be able to, if Tom... If Thomas White is correct, then we should be able to find these plant stress factors that uh, generates so regular fibrations in the herbivore populations. And that's what I have tried to do. So the, the chemical analysis of the plants, let's say trying to find the difference in the protein, once the proteins become less bioavailable, it sounds like the hypothesis is something separate from proteinase inhibitors, the, the types of uh, chemicals and plants that, uh, that, that prevent... Is, yes, it was, uh, very often when people are talking about plant defense, they are thinking in, in induced plant defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but here it is the constitutive defense that is relaxed when plants are stressed by something else than uh, grassing by herbivores. But it could be these proteins, when they are stored in uh, as complex compounds, it, they, they could be stored as uh, uh, inhibitors, mm-hmm. proteinase inhibitors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so it's, it's just that uh, Tom White, he, 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 he argued that this is a bottom-up uh, yes. relationship. Yes, and so is that is that a controversial... Um, uh, well, I, th- I feel that many other, uh, many ecologists are not aware of the, this hypothesis, for it is often it is often uh, ignored, uh, and even okay. in review in, in quite recent review papers, this hypothesis is just ignored. So, so I, I think he, he he did not succeed in uh, getting this uh, known and uh, accepted. Okay, but as far as you know, if any of your colleagues are aware of this, you're not hearing pushback like, oh, this can't be, it's in, it's impossible. Or, I mean, it seems like this is a testable hypothesis, is it not? Yes, I guess so. Uh, uh, I think plant physiologists have to work further with this hypothesis. Yeah. But what I, have, what I have done is to try to find uh, uh, stress factors that occur in such regular ways. Mm-hmm. And in Norway, we, we see there's a very good relationship between uh, mass the production of some plants and uh, and uh, wall populations. Uh, the bank wall increased after a peak year of uh, bilberry, and uh, it could not be the berries because lots of uh, small uh, rodents eat berries, but only the bank wall, which grasses the bilberry plant in winter, increases in number. 
after such a high seed drop. So I think the plants are stressed after a high seed drop, and it takes some time to uh, to recover their uh, their defense. I want to make sure I've captured the main thing you said. You're talking about there's a bilberry plant that has berries. The berries don't seem to be a factor in the cycle, but is it the bilberry leaves that are eaten mm-hmm. by herbivores? It is, that- a, it is a deciduous plant. So in, in winter, it's it's the stems and shoots that uh, the okay. vol- the vol is eating. Okay, stems so, and shoots. We have, we have three to four-year population cycles of, uh, of the bilberry and the bank vol. But I guess you are probably most interested in the 10-year cycles. I am. <laughs> yes, it's just they are so pronounced in in North America. We have them in North Europe, Europe too, but they are not so pronounced there. Mm-hmm. And I think we have it, it could be explained. And uh, I think it was uh, almost ten years ago. I I received an email from Herbert Archibald, and he wrote a paper in the 1970s. It has not been cited, and I was not aware of it. And he there he argued that it could be the moon. That was responsible for these uh, tenure cycles, but he had no explanation for the the mechanism. What is the moon doing? But there is a cycle, the lunar nodal fast cycle, mm-hmm. and it is so uh, 9.3 years. And then I started to look at this long time series. We have the links uh, which follow the hair fluctuation in uh, Canada. I think that we had that at that time we had at least 180 years. And when I took the whole period and divided Sorry, it by the I'm number right. of outbreaks. Just to, just to clarify for listeners that what we're talking about is Harold Archibald sent you a letter and argued that the modulation factor of the plant stress may be the moon. Is that yes. part? Yes. He, he, okay. had, he had no explanation. He didn't mention plants and, or predicting. He just said that the, that the interval between the peaks Right. Uh, he's, he's similar to this lunar cycle. Right. So he saw the correlation. And Harold Archibald, who is he? Uh, I have had some correspondence with him. I, he may be, uh, may be he has retired. No, he, has, he hasn't uh, published much, but he has written a few papers about this 9.3 cycle. And I guess he has some knowledge to astro- astrophysics, which uh, most ecologists have not. So is, so, is he an uh, ecologist himself? Uh, I'm not quite sure, but at oh, okay. least he, 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 he has been working with uh, Gross, and uh, so uh, uh, he, uh, maybe just very interested in uh, in okay. uh, wildlife. Okay, but he but he was he was pointing out, hey, there's a there's a I would never have discovered this myself because I wrote a paper about the solar cycle. Maybe that could be the thing, but uh, well, uh, it isn't because it doesn't match. Uh, right. Yeah. But he saw this paper I had written, and then he contacted me and said, no, 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 it's not the sun, it's the moon, he said. And I think he's right. Yeah, so I want to, again, go back to the big picture. If this hypothesis turns out to you know, pan out, I mean, I know there's a lot of evidence here. We can say, with I would say, certainty that there's a strong correlation between certainly. the lunar standstill cycle... It's a 9.3-year half cycle, which it translates into an 18.6-year full cycle. But the half cycles seem to be key for the influence on the uh, ecology that, that we're talking about here. So that link could have profound implications, the way I'm looking at it. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about yes. it. So yes, because the, this uh, correlation cannot be ignored, because we find it now in, in, in several uh, herbivore populations. And the, the longest time series is, is more than 1,000 years uh, long. 
after I read your paper, I was curious about um, other populations in the Northern Hemisphere, and I understand there's certain places where you sort of have the optimal influence, apparently. The correlation is very strong. But I l- decided to look at the United States, Canada, Russia. There was at least one Scandinavian country I looked at uh, where there are records of human population modulation. You have birth rates, records of uh, marriages and in some cases, divorces and things that are sort of related. Of course, there's so many things that influence birth rates that's very complex, but there's a um, a plot. I wonder if I can I'll share this with you really quickly. You'll see these peaks that correspond pretty well. And uh, again, co- correlation doesn't mean causation, of course. Okay. Um, but it's still an interesting thing to, uh, to examine. So I'm going to try to share this screen so you can see what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's also important for me to say that uh, the correlations cannot be ignored, but I have, I have proposed a mechanism, and that is a hypothesis, and yes. it could be wrong. But there, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so this is birth rates in the United States going back to around 1920. And of course, there, there are all kinds of things that, that influence it. But, you know, we've got the full cycle, half cycle, and it's not clear why one phase would matter more than the other. But if you look at the um, phase, let's say the first uh, vertical line, mm-hmm. and then you have a second vertical line, which is like the... 9.3, yes. Yes. And then but if you look at the 18.6... Huh? One of the ways to look at this is there are um, four fairly prominent peaks that mm, maybe there were some world events or whatever that that explain it, but mm. not sure. Anyway, uh, I think know, it's an interesting plot. It is interesting, but the, still the time series is somewhat too short, I think, because when there are so many other factors also that yes. are influencing. Yes, so it's, it's it, insufficient it, it, data to, to draw a conclusion, but it is no, a, no, it isn't. Oh. for what it is, it's, oh, it's, it's an interesting plot. <laughs> But, you know, I, I think that the cosmic ray could be the key factor here. And uh, I think there are some studies that show uh, that uh, some sort of cancer is more, uh, we have more of them in areas with low protection against, against cosmic rays. So that humans, humans are, in fact, uh, affected by it. Yeah, okay, so cancer rates. Yes, some, some types of cancer. Follow, yes. follow this in, in, again, in areas... It, they are more uh, vulnerable in, in those areas with low pro- protection. Mm-hmm. But of course, the, I, I had um, a seminar on this topic some years ago, and well, I asked, okay, was my English good enough? Oh, the English was so good enough, but the difficulty was the astrophysic, uh, as one of them said. And it, it, of course, ecologists, uh, most of them have not read astrophysic, and uh, it, it is uh, it is rather difficult these things. So um, cosmic rays, for instance, how many ecologists know what, what it is? What, what, uh... And knowing how to quantify it, I noticed that you sent a PowerPoint that went over the densities of the different high velocity protons and the, the gamma rays and the uh, subatomic particles, mm-hmm. estimating the densities. Now, these are also things that theoretically could be measured directly, correct? Yes, I think so. Uh, so, no, 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 we, we know about it. And uh, so we could start uh, 
starts from measuring it, I think. Mm-hmm. What, we're talk- what we're talking about is there are, are cosmic rays that are hitting the Earth all the time, but typically mm-hmm. they hit the atmosphere and there's a magnetic field that protects us from cosmic rays, mm-hmm. generally. The position of the moon and the sun relative to the Earth can modulate the magnetic field, and at certain positions, that magnetic field is altered to the point where cosmic rays can enter. Yes. And once the cosmic rays enter, they can do damage to biological systems, including plants. And once yes. the plants are stressed, the protein... Yes, they, they, the protein they, when they mobilize the proteins, that's very, very, uh, very hard to, uh, to digest for the herbivores. Yes. And so Maybe feeding decadence so, that they have to use to repair damages caused by these cosmic rays. Right. So then the, the plants become less digestible, and so the herbivores, all the, the, the insects and the animals and things that eat plants are, are uh, affected by that. Their population generally will hmm. be reduced. And then if the, their population is reduced, then other animal populations like the, the predators of the herbivores' hmm. populations are reduced and, and so forth. That is in periods with good protection. In, in periods with good protection against cosmic rays, then the plant will store their proteins as uh, indigestible. Indigestible, yes. Yes, yes. So, so that chain potentially is modulated further. There's a hypothesis that I was examining when I came across your paper, which was that allelochemicals of plants, for those who spend lots of time outdoors mm-hmm. may have some influence on on humans some way. I don't know how, but we already know there's um, maybe more mundane things like mood or, um, I mean, in some cases, uh, you know, you'll salivate <laughs> if you if you recognize a plant. I, I Because I forage, so I recognize plants sometimes mm-hmm. by smell, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's something I can eat. And so... There's that kind of thing, but um, there potentially are other things. You mentioned cancer. That's more directly from the cosmic ray modulation. But in terms of this chain of going from the solar lunar sand cell and then following this chain of potential causation, we definitely have correlation, but potential causation all the way to prey population modulation. Is any of that controversial as far as you know, from your publications? Uh, I guess this is, but, the, you know, the effect of the moon on the cosmic rays, that is not the hypothesis. That is something we can measure. That's yes. something we know. So, so the hypothesis is that these cosmic rays in the periods when, uh, when you have an increased uh, flux, so the hypothesis is that this is so harmful for the plants that they have to mobilize proteins and then therefore they get more valuable as food for animals. And this is controversial because uh, I think we still have many ecologists who don't believe in uh, plant defense at all. Uh, I know one here in Scandinavia, he said he has no faith at all that plants are able to defend themselves. So he thinks the only way, the only reason why the plants are not eaten, all of them, is that the predators uh, keep the number of herbivores at a low level. So I, I can't agree at all, because, okay, the plants, they can't run away, they can't hide, but they have s- several other ways to defend themselves. And uh, I know one uh, ecologist said that there is a jungle in there. It is so complex, much of these uh, chem- uh, chemical uh, things that are going on in plants. And, uh, yeah. Yes, and I and 
we know that plants are hard to digest and we know that the protein content is very low. So, you know, for, for, you, for, for us, it is energy, which usually is the limiting factor. But for herbivores, it's usually proteins because the protein content is so low and all animals consist of proteins. So the protein demand is high when, for instance, we shall, shall uh, uh, develop a new growth from this little chick lots of proteins are needed and the same also to build a, a, a whatever herbivore it is uh, we are talking about mm-hmm. they need much proteins are needed for growth and reproduction mm-hmm. so the one of the best strategies for the plants is just to be so low in protein content and, and have the protein uh, digestibility so low that the, that the plant cannot use this plant mm-hmm. So it sounds like it's mainly the um, the it's the bioavailability of the protein in the plant that seems like it's potentially a controversial topic. Mm. Yes, I think so. So if there were, like you you mentioned before, if a plant physiologist or even an experiment could be conducted where plants were fed to an animal, plants that were exposed to the cosmic rays versus Plants. So let's say they're. No, I'm not quite sure. I think it's very difficult, but uh, uh, I hope that many young ecologists will uh, continue and uh, follow this track. Yeah. So I think it will be very exciting to see what we can, how we can get further. But um, one thing I have not mentioned yet is that these ten-year cycles—they are much more pronounced. I said that much more pronounced in North America than in Europe. And I think the reason is that the magnetic North Pole is situated at the American side of the geographical North Pole, mm-hmm. and therefore Canada receives much more cosmic rays than Europe. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the doses of cosmic rays is highest in central Canada, and that's exactly where the hair population cycles start. Every new outbreak starts in central Canada. Where the where the protection against the cosmic rays is the lowest, mm-hmm. so I think many patterns which we can see out there they they fit this uh, cosmic ray hypothesis very well. Yes, and your plots are pretty compelling. I think when you look at how the the correlation is uh, pretty undeniable, well, especially among the um, the populations themselves. You know the nine point three year periods that go on for, in, in one case, you know, so you mentioned over 100 years, there was one case where you mentioned that you showed that was... Uh, More than 1,000 years for this uh, yeah. lot from the European Alps, because yeah, they, so, have, they have a dendrochronology to, uh, to, so they can see when, uh, when there have been attack, but because then there is almost no growth in the tree. So you can look at the tree rings, and they have got, uh, used uh, timbers from old buildings uh, from far back in time. And uh, very nice that someone have, have done this, because then I could use this uh, the data set as, as yours. Look here. So you think trees yes, tree they, growth they, they are is modulated in, by the same lunar-solar standstill cycle? Yes, because this, this was in very high altitudes, and, and there the, the atmospheric uh, pressure is low. And uh, in fact, uh, mm. uh, the fluxes of cosmic rays increases exponentially with the increasing elevation. 
So in these high altitudes, uh, they see much uh, cosmic rays in uh, those periods, and the protection is slow. And and uh, and uh, therefore you can see in Norway we have this autumnal moth. It is common all over the country, but it is only at the high altitude that we have so uh, uh, outbreaks, as we call them, so that the trees are defoliated uh, completely. Uh-huh. So I think the trees are most stressed there and then in the lowland. Okay. So that so, there are so many patterns that fit this uh, cosmic ray hypothesis, but of course we must always be open for alternative explanations. Yes. So that's always important for, uh, for scientists. Also, bigger picture, regardless of causation, if you know that there's a pronounced cycle in anything, that in itself empirically allows for prediction hmm. right so if you're if you're interested in what's going to happen in the future and you have a history that is extremely well repeated then you'll have a pretty good idea what's going to happen in the future so for example yeah. for any of these populations where you have this record of cycle you can predict uh, okay next year is we're on an upswing on the cycle so it's going to be a good year for this species <laughs> yes that's true but so, of course, you, you always have to remember that there are other factors too that can yes. affect. Sometimes everything is good for the herbivores so get, get a very high peak, and other, yes, there are some, yes. uh, maybe a very harsh winter or something, uh, yes. other bad things that happen, so you should just get a lower peak. Yes, yes, it's, it's not, it's not um, a closed system, so other things can definitely yes, it. affect it. But a lot of the data that in your plots, to me, they were compelling because even with all the other factors that come to play, the population was modulated in that, with that cycle in a way that almost looked like a closed system mm. for, for m- many of the examples that you're, you've given. So you mentioned humans are affected. There's a, a evidence that cancer rates follow the same cycle. They're correlated. Are you aware of any other ways that humans may be affected by the cycle? No. Uh, it's just by uh, an incident that I found this uh, citation of this uh, this uh, study. So I have I have been most interested in uh, the wild animals, of course. So uh, I don't know any other studies. And that was uh, uh, I saw one paper that they argued that there had been far too little uh, interest over the impact of cosmic rays. Uh, for some years ago, we started to get interested in the UVB, the Im- impact or importance of UVB on the, both of humans and on the mm-hmm. natural systems. But maybe the same, you know, start uh, with, with regard to uh, cosmic rays. Uh, I, I saw an author arguing for this. Now it's time to start studying also the um, impact of cosmic rays. Now, UVB is not modulated the way cosmic rays are, right? Because the reason cosmic rays are modulated, from our understanding, is from the magnetic field being modulated, yes. and the yes. cosmic rays are essentially yes. charged particles. So they're yes, that's the, the true. Char- it's the moving charge. magnetic connection between the sun and the earth. This is this yeah. is important for this yeah. modulating of the cosmic rays. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right. Bye. 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 Okay, so that last interview basically was connecting the cosmic rays with the populations of a number of species, not including humans. 
But in a more recent paper by Thomas Ware and Charlotte Helfrich Forster entitled Longitudinal Observations Call Into Question the Scientific Consensus that Humans Are Unaffected by Lunar Cycles. This paper shows direct correlations between uh, lunar standstill cycles and a number of things, including human menstrual cycles, sleep-wake cycles, manic-depressive cycles, and they have references to uh, sort of related things. The plots that they include really are illuminating. They're, they're very, very enlightening, I would say, on this topic. Okay, so in figure two, you see years along the vertical axis and the synodic lunar months along the horizontal axis. It, this is including data from menstrual cycles. They also have data for uh, manic depressive cycles. There's a similar type of thing going on for sleep cycles. So what they show is entrainment that happen over several months for this synodic lunar month. So this is a 29.53 day length cycle. And depending on the phase of the lunar standstill cycle, it has a different phase. So it'll, it'll have a certain phase of, you know, a phase lock. It's in other words, depending on what they call, let's say the beginning of the menstrual cycle, that relative to the full moon will change depending on what year it is. And then there are some months where it's kind of slipping or maybe over a few months and then it locks again and you have a bunch of months where it's the same phase. So any kind of situation like that where the phase is slipping and then it locks and it slips and it locks over time, if you integrate it all, you're looking for correlation, you'll find a very low correlation. But if you just look at where it's in lock and it's in lock, oh, at least 65% of the time, if not like 75% of the time, depends on how you want to define lock. You know, most of the time it's it's in lock. There's certain parts of, this, of the lunar standstill cycle where you have many months in a row where it's spot on, just very well locked. So that's figure two. So what does this mean? This means that we see a correlation between the lunar cycles and human reproductive cycles in this case, also mood and sleep cycles. So there's a connection. Connecting these dots, we now have the lunar human entrainment hypothesis. That leaves the question about the link between the 9.3 and 18.6 year lunar standstill cycles with spiritual and paranormal events. Anecdotally, certain types of paranormal events appear to be correlated with the lunar cycles, especially the lunar standstill cycle. So evidence includes, we started with just two premonitional dream examples that occurred during times consistent with this hypothesis, as well as too many more to mention. We will be examining these in general in future episodes. We noted that our ability to perceive and recognize these events is influenced by the predictable perceptual system distortions, distortions in memory, and how much we are adhering to social norms. Understanding perceptual and memory type distortions and illusions helps in sorting out the nature of what the stimulus was. We can learn to better interpret what we perceive. We can develop intuitional perception as well as physical perception to better detect these events when they occur. The cosmic ray hypothesis in ecology and lunar standstill phase-adjusted synodic lunar entrainment of sexual reproductive cycles, sleep and mood, both have compelling evidence. So putting this all together, we have evidence of lunar paranormal 
event entrainment. There's utility in examining the fringes where entropy tends to be maximum, and also in empirical evidence in initial explorations. So our next episode will feature an interview with a deep dive into the sea of thousands of UFO encounter stories, pull up a few in detail, and examine some surprising things they have in common. The third episode will feature an interview with a medium with a PhD in philosophy who has become an expert in orb photography with many other interesting experiences and perspectives. I'm having a fun and fascinating time learning as I go, and maybe you are too. Thanks again to our guest, Vidar Celos, and Portland, Oregon actors Beth Rickardson, Darlene Sorensen, and Ross Laguza. Today's sponsor is Debone.com. The music today was from my albums, including Pure Fractals 2, Strad Strat, I'm No AI, Subtle Hint, and now playing is Paw My Dream from Restless, Reckless, and Wild. I'm your host, Kevin Ferguson. We'll be back soon. 